I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. I just wanted to let you know I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dereshchai Experiment, the show where we use the text to help us to dive deeper into the text. Last week we began the second of the three sections of the Book of Numbers. This middle section of the book that is primarily narrative, with the exception of just a few chapters of commands that we will find, are directed towards the narratives that surround them. These narratives in the middle of this book, they're among some of the most profound and iconic stories in all of the Bible. We read the stories of the Twelve Spies, the Rebellion of Korah, Moses striking the rock twice, a talking donkey, and the Bronze Serpent being among these stories that make up the center portion of this book. But these stories are not memorable simply because of their content, the characters and the plot points and the climax of each story. Rather, these stories are so memorable because they are us. The stories of rebellion bound here in the midst of the book of Numbers are stories that shine a light on the darker parts of our own hearts. They reveal our selfish tendencies, our prideful instincts, our predatory nature, our fearful reactions and our faithless responses. In short, these stories reveal our hard hearts. And it is into these stories that we are invited to sit and to marinate, to consider how we reflect each of these tendencies in our own nature. How each and every one of us can relate to Israel as they learn to trust in Hashem and His promises and His power. How to trust regardless of how impossible it seemed and how difficult it got. Last week, we read a story that presented a dichotomy, a group of people desiring more from their circumstances, and in their desire, they held up as the example of what was good, the evil that they had been delivered from. They spoke against the gift that God was placing on their doorstep every single morning, and they longed for the good old days when they could eat whatever they wanted in Egypt. Forget the fact of the death and the oppression that was part of the package. Contrasted against this was a single man who was fed up with his circumstances. He was tired of being expected to provide for every single complaint of the people. They want meat and they want it now. Where am I supposed to get meat for these people? 
and in his frustration with the ongoing situation and the lack of any kind of hint of relief to be had, he wishes to simply die. And this contrast of complaint is then provided for by God in equally contrasting ways. Both are provided for through the coming of a ruach. In the case of Moses' complaint, it is a spirit that is taken from him and given to those who were to be his assistants, the elders of the community. In the case of the people, enough food is provided for them to eat for the foreseeable future. In the case of Moses, the solution is a blessing and a relief from the oppression of the leadership. And in the case of the people, the solution is an initial blessing that then turns into a curse. Those who were controlled by an overwhelming desire to return to the good old days were weeded out of the camp. And the lesson in this is that we must be careful for what we ask for. God will give us what we ask for. He does it all throughout Scripture, and I can attest that He has done so in my own life. But what we ask for is not always in His will. And what we ask for is not always what will be good for us. And sometimes, sometimes what we ask for will be an affront to Him. Not just opposed to His will, but in direct opposition to Him and His glory. And yet he still might give you what you ask for, to your own destruction. Well, this week we read a new narrative. A narrative with only four characters. Miriam, Aaron, Moses, and Hashem. A story that we're all familiar with, but also a story that might contain some surprises when we truly sit and we consider what it has to say. So let's open our Bibles and let's read this very short chapter of Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Now Miriam and Aharon spoke against Moshe because of the Cushite woman whom he had taken, for he had taken a Cushite woman. And they said, Has Hashem spoken only through Moshe? Has he not also spoken through us? And Hashem heard it. And the man Moshe was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly Hashem said to Moshe and Aaron and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of appointment. So the three came out. And Hashem came down in the column of cloud and stood in the door of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And he said, Hear now my words. If your prophet is of Hashem, I make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moshe. He is trustworthy in all my house. I speak with him mouth to mouth and plainly and not in riddles. And he sees the form of Hashem. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moshe? And the displeasure of Hashem burned against them, and he left. And the cloud turned away from above the tent, and look, Miriam was leprous and white as snow, and Aaron turned towards Miriam, and look, a leper. And Aaron said to Moshe, O oh, my master, please do not hold against us the sin in which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, when coming out of his mother's womb with our flesh half consumed. And Moshe cried out to Hashem, saying, O oh, El, please, heal her, please. And Hashem said to Moshe, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and after that let her be readmitted. And Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not set out until Miriam was readmitted. And afterward the people departed from Chatzorot, and they camped in the wilderness of Paran. As this chapter opens, we find a curious statement. 
Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, I have heard all sorts of teachings on this one verse, and nearly all of them focus on the disposition of Moses. What's happening here? Was Moses a polygamist? Did he have multiple wives? <gasps> well, many polygamist apologists will use this passage as support for a positive view of polygamy. After all, many biblical heroes had multiple wives. Abraham, Jacob, Esau, Gideon, David, Solomon, Moses. See, these important biblical figures had multiple wives. And this passage simply becomes so much fodder to support a polygamous lifestyle. Others see this word used as an idiom or a slur that Miriam was using to refer to Zipporah, simply a way of referring to her as from another nation. Now, some say that Zipporah was unusually dark-skinned for a Midianite, and so this was some sort of racial dig at Zipporah. Still, others state that Miriam was indeed speaking of Zipporah, and they'll point to Habakkuk 3 as the foundation for this thought. Habakkuk 3.7 I saw the tents of Kushan under sorrow, and the curtains of the land of Midian tremble. You see, Kushan and Midian are made equivalent in this verse. All you have to do is simply change the word that's used in this chapter from Kushite to Kushan, and this view makes sense, right? The use of Kushite, then, is it's simply a scribal error that predates the Septuagint, and it should really read as a Kushan woman, thus a Midianite woman, thus Zipporah. Now, Josephus says that before Moses left Egypt, he was commander in a campaign in Ethiopia, leading the Egyptian armies. During this campaign, the princess of the city that he was besieging then fell in love with him. And so he married this Ethiopian princess who then handed over the city that he was besieging. This is, however, a polygamist view. Jewish Midrash states that Moses, when he originally left Egypt, he went first to Ethiopia. There he married a princess and eventually became the king of Ethiopia although he never lived with his wife or worshipped his wife's Ethiopian gods, because obviously she's a pagan. Again, a polygamist view, but with the caveat that Moses at least was not sleeping with this foreign idolater. And finally, it's been posited that perhaps Zipporah had died and Moses had taken a new wife, or that Zipporah had returned with, to her father's house with Moses' brother-in-law, and so Moses is divorced, and now he took a new wife. And, and that's just a smattering of various ideas that are espoused on verse 1 of this chapter. And frankly, each of these ideas is one that detracts from what the chapter is attempting to reveal. And some of them, they draw dangerously close to doing exactly what this chapter is warning against. The fact of the matter is that Aaron and Miriam seemed to harbor some envy of the position that Moses had been granted. And his wife... His wife became the thing that was unacceptable and that didn't conform to their ideas of how things should be done. But their issue is that they were important too. Verse 2, has Hashem spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us? Aren't we just as important? Shouldn't we be just as recognized before the people as our younger brother is? Shouldn't we get just as much honor? We're leaders in the community as well. I mean, look at him. His wife's not even an Israelite. And everyone just listens to him. And their discontent and pride in their own position leaks out in the form of slander. 
And we can know that this slanderous comment is based on pride, not just because of what they say in verse 2, but then by what we read in verse 3. Moses, however, was the most humble man alive. In contrast to the pride that Miriam and Aaron felt in their own position and their own proximity to Hashem. The pride and the honor that they had gained in the community of Israel. And so when Hashem hears the slander of Aaron and Miriam, they get called to the proverbial principal's office. Now, for Aaron and Miriam, when they receive the call to come to the tabernacle alongside Moses, what do you think their initial response was? I mean, there's there's a lot of takes. This is I'm just guessing, but uh, let's let's uh, do a thought experiment here. So they didn't know why they were being called. Perhaps they thought, finally. We're being included in these conferences that Moses has with Hashem. We're about to be recognized for our own importance. After all, Aaron is the high priest. Miriam is a prophetess. It's about time that we were raised up to the position that we know we should have. They had no idea what was about to happen. They only knew that they wanted to be recognized as important alongside Moses. And now they're being called to stand beside him before Hashem. And when they get there, they're called out to step forward. Here it comes. We're going to get our medals for being significant people. Little did they know the dressing down that was coming upon them. And so to begin with, Hashem recognizes their importance. He calls out the people that he speaks to, those who hear from Hashem. If there is a prophet among you from me, Hashem says, then I make my will known through a vision or a dream. But Moses, Moses is different than anyone else. Moses speaks to me face to face and not in riddles. He sees the form of Hashem. And in this, we discover something that I find to be extremely important. When God speaks to men, he does not do so in clear speech and literal words. Hashem speaks to men in riddles in symbols and metaphors, parables and proverbs. The only one who has ever heard the voice of God like a friend is Moses, and perhaps Yeshua, the trustworthy servant, the only trustworthy servant in the house of Hashem. Why was Moses the trustworthy servant? Well, the reason given is because of Moses' quality of humility. His humbleness is what qualified Moses to be trusted in this way. Because all too often what happens is that prophets get puffed up in their own importance to Hashem. Hashem speaks to me. Hashem has called me to do something. I've been given a message from the Lord. I am important, and Hashem has revealed secrets to me. And their relationship to Hashem and the trust that he has put in their hands leads them to react in pride in their own position and importance in God's plan. And this is the exact opposite of what Hashem desires as a response from us humans. He does not choose those who are strong and capable and powerful. Just as with Israel, Hashem chooses those he works with based not on anything that would recommend them of themselves, but rather he chooses in order to make himself known. 
Rather than reacting in pride, as we see here, a prophet must act in humility, for they are being confirmed as a servant, and as a servant they must serve in humility. They must not elevate themselves to a position of honor. That's the way of Haman in the book of Esther. But that's not the only important thing that's happening in these verses. We read here what I find to be an important hermeneutic principle. For those who don't know, this big word, hermeneutics, it's simply what principles a person uses to interpret scripture. And what do we find that helps us to develop a scripture-based hermeneutic in this passage? When God speaks to people, he speaks in riddles. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated as riddle is the word chida, and it means a riddle, a difficult question, a parable, enigmatic saying or question or puzzle. I would submit that God's word, what we call the scriptures that has been given to the world in printed form, is steeped in this kind of language as well. It's full of riddles, symbols, metaphors, and parables. Even the stories that can be taken literally and are literal stories, they are also parables that God has given to mankind to reveal much deeper truths than what the surface or what a simple literal meaning contains. And so while we can read the Bible literally and gain some information from it, I believe this passage to reveal that the real power and truth in Scripture comes from approaching the text as if it were a riddle, as if it were a parable. The literal meanings, they are important for the sake of history, context, learning, and so forth. But the symbolic meanings are where the true power of the text lies. But what about the Torah, you might ask? Hashem spoke the Torah to Moses in plain speech, and so the Torah, at least, we should read as literal. And to this I would respond, but who was the Torah written for? Was the Torah written for the benefit of Moses, or was the Torah given for the benefit of us all? And if the Torah is given for the benefit of us all, then does it make more sense for it to be just a series of historical events and laws? Or is it a document that tells these historical events in such a way as to capture the important symbols, the important metaphors, and the ideas that contain way more than can possibly be held in just the literal? And I believe that it is this that Isaiah 28 is warning against a strictly literal interpretation, as I brought up before. Isaiah 28.13, But the word of Hashem was to them, command upon command, command upon command, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. To them, the word of God, it was literal. It was legal code. It was nothing more. Nothing more to see. Only what is specifically contains in the lines and commands. And we stack those all upon each other. And there you go. You have the interpretation. And what was the end of those who take this approach of interpreting God's word? Well, if you finish the verse, it was so that they shall go and stumble backwards and be broken and snared and taken captive. Hashem, steeping his message in this way, provides a test to all mankind, one that we'll speak of more in a moment. Now, if this was simply a statement here in Numbers about how God speaks to men, then I think that there would be a case for simply reading the Bible as primary literal. But the fact is that Yeshua also uses this method of speaking to his audience. In Mark 4, we read this in verse 1 through 2. 
And he began to teach again by the sea, and a large crowd was gathered to him, so that he entered into a boat to sit in the sea, and all the crowd was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them much in parables, and said to them this teaching. Yeshua, teaching the crowds he taught in parables. And in this case he goes on to tell the parable of the sower. Then later, after the parable, we read this later in the chapter, in verse 33-34. through 34. And with many such parables he was speaking to them the words as they were able to hear, and he was not speaking to them without parables. Yeshua did not speak to the crowds without parables, like father, like son. So why would Hashem, why would Yeshua speak to men in parables? Why use hidden sayings, symbols, and metaphors to speak this message that gives life? Well, I've stumbled upon three possibilities for why this might be. And first, it's so that those who are not truly interested in hearing, they won't hear. Yeshua was asked the same question in Matthew thirteen ten through 13 And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answering said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever possesses to him, more shall be given, and he shall have overflowingly. But whoever does not possess, even what he possesses shall be taken away from him. Because of this I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Interestingly enough, Yeshua answers the parable with the riddle. And parables and the riddles, they provide a way for God to conceal information from those who are not ready to hear them, those who have not been given the ability to hear. They act as a way of coding a message to speak only to those that God has prepared to take that next step. Always sitting there available and waiting for God to open the eyes of another to discover the next depth to the text. The second reason that I've discovered is so that we would be forced to rely on him for interpretation. Genesis 45, 15-16 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have dreamed a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Now I myself have heard it said of you that you understand a dream to interpret it. He's saying, I've been given a riddle by God, and I can't make heads or tails of it. And in verse 16, Joseph answers Pharaoh and says, It is not in me. Let God answer Pharaoh with peace. Again, we read nearly the same thing in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, 16-22 And Daniel went in and he asked the king to give him time, and he would show the king the interpretation. And Daniel went to his house, and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, to seek compassion from the God of heavens concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions should not perish with the rest of the wise ones of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel responded and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the season. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who possess understanding. He reveals deep and secret matters. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, that you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And once again, we see that this is how Yeshua acted with his parables. Finishing off verse 34 from Mark 4, And when they were alone, 
he explained all to his disciples. And this is the test contained in the word of God being steep in this method. Will you trust him to interpret it for you? Or will you interpret it on your own, with your own power, your own reasoning, and your own intellect? You see, God does not want us relying on our own intellect and reasoning to interpret his word. It is given in riddles so that we're forced to go before him and ask him to interpret it for us so that we can understand. And he will be faithful to give a meaning that is applicable to us where and when we ask him to interpret his word for us. And the third reason that I have found is one that's not specifically stated in Scripture, but I think it is the foundation that lies behind what Scripture says about itself. With a literal story or message, you can only ever have one meaning. It can only ever mean one thing. But with a riddle, a puzzle, or a symbolic metaphor, there are layers of meaning that can apply in multiple ways and in multiple contexts. And this is something that gives the text of Scripture a life that is not present in other texts. It can be new every morning. It can be fresh in each circumstance. And I believe that is why the Bible is so vague in various circumstances. It is this vagueness that allows the meaning to be extrapolated in a multitude of ways. And this vagueness then becomes its own test, because we are then allowed to fill in the gaps in our own ways. And the way that we fill in the gaps, those vague parts, it then reveals something about ourselves. Now, far too often, it's easy to disregard Bible reading and set it aside because it's dry or you've read it a hundred times before. But the reality is that the story that you have read a hundred times before, it might mean something new in this new circumstance that you are in at this time in your life that you've never been in before in this new mindset that you've never had before, with this new knowledge and wisdom that you've never had before. And when we combine all of these together, the word of God is as the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and working and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting through even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this one profound understanding of Scripture, it can change this book for you forever. It can open up entire scopes of profound meaning that was not there before. It can cut through into your very heart and reveal what's hiding there. I can't state it enough. Simply seeing the Bible as only literal, it makes it stagnant. It's a pond. Sure, it's made of water that gives life, but it itself is not living. It's set in stone. No variation, no inlet, no outlet, no movement. It can only ever mean one thing as a literal document. It's not living. It's not working. It's just meaningful words on a page. But if it is a riddle and a symbol as well as literal, then every convention that we find in use within its pages is one that's designed to pack the most punch. So returning to Numbers 12, in the story that we're exploring today in verse 9, we read that the displeasure of Adonai burned against them. Now this phrase is something that we've read several times already just in the last chapter, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to be when the people were as complainers, it was evil in the ears of Hashem, and Hashem heard it. And his displeasure burned, and the fire of Hashem burned among them, and consumed those in the outskirts of the camp. And then later on in Numbers 11, 10, and Moses 
heard the people weeping throughout their clans, each man at the door of his tent, and the displeasure of Hashem burned exceedingly, and in the eyes of Moses it was evil. In the last chapter it was the rabble and the gluttonous and those who wished to return to Egypt that the displeasure of Hashem was turned against. But here we see that not even the leadership of Israel was immune from coming under the ire of Hashem. His displeasure burned against them, and what was the result? Miriam became leprous. Now in verse 1 it was both Aaron and Miriam that spoke against Moses. Both were responsible for the slander. So why did only one become leprous? Well, the traditional response is that it was Miriam that instigated the slanderous remarks against Moses. And we get a couple of clues of this in the text. First, it's Miriam that's named first before Aaron in verse 1. And second, the very first word of the chapter in the Hebrew, the word translated as spoke against, the feminine form is used. So it's thought that Miriam was punished because she started it. And that might just be the case. But there's another possible reason that explains why it might have happened this way. And they're not mutually exclusive, but it could be both of these. You see, Aaron was high priest. He'd been granted a level of holiness that leprosy simply could not encroach in. It's similar to how Yeshua was able to touch lepers and not become defiled by it, but rather his holiness was able to drive that leprosy away from them. And the role of high priest, it's a role of intercessor. Now suddenly Aaron is forced to reckon with his participation in this evil and to take up his role of intercessor. And in this, he recognizes his place in relationship to Moses. In verse 11, Aaron turns to Moses and addresses him as, My Lord. All thought that Aaron may have had in verse 2 of his own place as being equal to Moses has been shattered. He immediately recognizes that Moses is indeed favored of Hashem, and he is instantly shamed for his own part in the slander. And for the first time we see Aaron take up the role of intercessor that up until now, only Moses has occupied. And this is not the last time that we're going to see Aaron take up this role. In the rebellion of Korah, we'll see Aaron once again act as intercessor. He will stand between the living and the dead, stopping another plague dead in its tracks. Numbers 16, 46-48, So Moses said to Aaron, Take the fire holder and put fire in it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and go and hurry to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from Hashem. The plague has begun. And Aaron took it as Moshe commanded, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and saw that the plague had begun among the people. And he laid on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. And this is one of the primary roles of the high priest, to stand between the living and the dead, and to plead on behalf of those who are caught in the judgment of their own choices. Hebrews seven twenty-five through 27 Therefore he is also able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, ever living to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, kind, innocent, undefiled, having been separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need as those high priests to offer up sacrifice offerings day by day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so Moses also takes up this cry, and this is a role that Moses was familiar with, one that he had fulfilled on multiple occasions in the past. And once again, he takes up the cry. Hashem, 
Please save her. Let her not be as one of the dead. Please return her to the living, to the camp, to us. And so Miriam, this woman who was the leading lady of Israel, was shamed for her act of shaming Moses in her words. She was shamed publicly for sharing an unfavorable opinion of the one who had been chosen by God. Now, she is cured of her leprosy, but that does not prevent the shame that had come upon her through this judgment from God. She is sent from the camp for seven days to be the first person that Leviticus 14 is applied to, the ritual for cleansing the leper who has been cleaned. And so... Israel remains in this place for seven days, waiting for this cleansing ritual to be completed so that Miriam could rejoin the camp before departing for their next destination. Frankly, things are not looking good for Israel at this point. There are only two stops into their journey, and already the displeasure of Hashem has burned against them three times, and the wrath of Hashem has burned against them once. They've had two plagues break out against them, and one of their leaders has been afflicted with Zarot as punishment for an offense. This trip to take the lamb, it's not going well. But hey, things will look up, right? In the next chapter, they'll reach the border of Canaan. They're close to entering the land. The trip is almost over. Or is it? Now, we all know that this is just the beginning. Even with what all that has happened in the years since leaving Egypt, they are only at the start of their journey. Why? And we'll talk about that more next week. For now, let's return to what started this whole affair in the first place. The slanderous remarks that Miriam and Aaron engaged in towards Moses. Now, we went through a whole host of reasons for why Moses might have ended up with an Ethiopian wife, or perhaps not. And this serves as an example of something that I spoke of earlier. It's vague to a great degree. And the way that we choose to interpret this vagueness, then, reveals a lot about the person interpreting the text. How do you fill this gap? Do you trust the text as it is? If so you do, then you can't go with the Kushan-Kushite replacement of the text. In this case, then, there's only one explanation that's socially acceptable. Zipporah died. Every other explanation leaves Moses with multiple wives or divorced. Added to this, the woman that he married alongside his foreign wife or after his foreign wife was another foreigner. Even if we go with the death of Zipporah explanation, the woman that Moses follows up with is not what would have been expected of him. Nothing about this situation with Moses and his wives is socially acceptable. Every possibility has problems, and perhaps the most problematic is the one that makes this all okay. The possibility that the text was changed at one point. That's the only one that makes this socially acceptable. And that is problematic in its own way. And perhaps this is the point. Moses did something that was not popular or acceptable by social norms. But alternatively, what he did was not a sin. Whatever he did, it did not set him at odds with Hashem. It set him at odds with the people. Well, the people, they look in on this and they tisk tisk the impropriety of it all. And we're forced to sit back and consider our own tendency to do this. To look in on the lives of others, whether a leader or not, 
and to talk to others about how they are not living up to what we expect of them. They're doing things out of order, or not the way that they should be done. I mean, look at Moses. He's unequally yoked to an Ethiopian woman. Look at Moses. He has two wives. Look at Moses. He's divorced and remarried. Look at Moses. He's not doing what's best for the community, what's best for his family, what's best for himself. Can you believe what she is wearing? Did you see what he did? Can you believe what he said? Can you believe that they listen to that kind of music or they watch that show? He is not living up to my standard. They are not doing it my way, our way, the way that we have chosen as the way. And the talking spreads and spreads. And as it spreads, and as it spreads, so does the discontent right alongside it. And this is where we find our own hearts in this chapter. Because the fact is that talking about others is usually based on a heart of pride. It is the idea that I have it right, and I have it all figured out. That other person, though, they're failing. They're falling. They are not conforming to our ways regardless of whether or not they're conforming to Hashem. And too often, our slander takes on the form of righteousness. They're not doing what Hashem has commanded because they don't interpret the text the same way that I do. They don't fill in those gaps in the same way that I do. I have it all right. I interpret the text properly, and I am the only one who does so. And the pride in our own thoughts on scripture, they end up taking the lead. And we end up falling into the trap of Isaiah 28. We end up falling into the trap that Miriam and Aaron fell into. Slandering a servant of God because of our own pride in our righteousness and our relationship with God. Rather than allowing service to God to lead us to humility We allow his choice to use us as a servant to lead us to pride. I was chosen as a servant. And that pride then ends up damaging others who are also servants of Hashem. This is something that we must guard against. We must be willing when we see others who claim to be of Hashem acting in a way that we have not chosen to act in humility to recognize that God is leading them to the same goal of relationship with him, but that he's doing so in a way that is unique to them. And this is the challenge that we're faced with in this week's text. For we have been chosen by God. He has pursued each one of us for the purpose of calling us to serve him. The way of the world is to let this lead us into pride, to lift our heads in honor. But the fact is that unless we react with humility before him, then we will fail. We have already failed. And those things that we are so sure of in our interpretation of Scripture that we would use them as weapons against each other, well, the fact is that the Word of God is a sword, but it's a sword to be used against the adversary and against ourselves, not one to be used against each other, except in the case of egregious offenses. 
So let us learn humility in our callings. Let us learn unity in our communities. And this vicious weapon of gossip, the use of the word of God as a weapon against our brothers, must stop. Because killing each other with our tongues does not lead to life. And so this action must be discarded as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.